we're working our way through the book of Daniel, and we're going to um, be looking at the next stage of this journey of these four boys. Reminder, last week, um, Roger introduced the book to you, and it's well worth going back and looking at that, because he set up a lot of the things that we're going to be preaching into over the next few weeks. And so the context, I don't, you know, we don't want to keep going back into the context all the time, uh, but go and have a look. But the context is that uh, Israel has fallen to Babylon, uh, there's been a, a big change, God has delivered the tribe of Judah into uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result of that, a group of, quite a big group of young men and women, particularly men, about 14 years old, had been taken into exile, and they were captives of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Before we get into it, I just want to recommend two books to you. Okay, the first book, I've got, I've got the clicker, yeah, there we go, uh, is by Phil Moore. It's in the Straight to the Heart series, and this is covering particularly Daniel and Esther, but it's well worth reading. It's not a very difficult book to read. You could read it as part of your daily devotions, and we, we'd encourage you to follow Daniel as part of your daily devotions, just getting into it um, and get it into you. But this is well worth it. Um, you can read it alongside your daily devotions. It's really well worthwhile. The second book, which um, I've personally got a lot from, it's a bit more technical, it's a bit more in-depth. Um, it's called Against the Floor by John Lennox. Um, John Lennox is um, a, a writer that I've started to appreciate very much. But this particular book, he's looking at the, the inspiration of Daniel in an age of relativism. Okay, and much of what we're talking about is this relativism age that we live in right now. And so, again, really helpful if you want to get in a bit more depth, it's a really good book to get yourself into. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 1, and we're picking the story up at verse 8, and Hazel is going to come and read that for me. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in a worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As to these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, 
the chief of the eunuchs, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So these 14-year-old boys, somewhere 14 to 16, um, have come into captivity. And they are now um, being taken uh, to be taught about the Babylonian wisdom. Um, they will be taught about the language and the culture. They were going to be taught about uh, witchcraft and dreams and visions and astrology and goodness knows what else. They were the cream of the crop. They were 14-year-old boys who were going to get 16 A stars at GCSE. Okay, that's what that's the kind of kid we're talking about. And they are called in before um, the steward. You've got the story there. Just took right at the end that last sentence, and Daniel remained there for the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, that was 50, 60 years later. Okay, so the story of Daniel encompasses from a 14-year-old boy to somebody who's my age, 60, 60 plus. It's an incredible story. And we're going to be looking this morning what it means to live as exiles in a godless society. Okay, we're going to be looking at what it means to be living in Babylon. We're going to explore, as the old evangelicals would say, that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Has anybody heard that statement before? Usually it's to kind of excuse us from getting involved, but actually, as we read this story, we find actually Daniel and his friends get incredibly involved in the society they're in. As, as Roger said last week, we live in a society now which is squeezing Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, who are being squeezed in what we believe and what we think. Roger mentioned about marriage and sexuality, but we could add finance, we could add identity, we could add all sorts of things. Do you really believe what it says in here? Let's water it down, let's squeeze it. How can you, be, um, how can you believe that? Even to the point where it's considered dangerous to believe some of the things that we, as evangelical Christians, believe. We're being squeezed. We live in a godless society. That does not mean we don't live in a spiritual society. There's a difference. The Babylonians, Babylonians were godless in, in, that, in the sense that they didn't worship the living God, but they were spiritual in the sense that they Listen to dreams and visions and witchcraft and astrology and all sorts of things. They were very, very spiritual. They were just godless. We live in a society today which is godless, but is incredibly spiritual. Has anybody ever talked to you about crystals? Has anybody ever talked to you about sleeping under pyramids? Yeah. Energy. Has anybody talked to you about their spirit guide? As I've said before from here, it's great, my job's really good at starting conversations. What do you do for a living? Oh, I work for a church. Okay, you'd think that was a great conversation over until the next sentence, but, well, let me tell you what I believe. And then out, out it comes. <laughs> 10 minutes later, I've forgotten what the first question was. We live in an incredibly spiritual society, but it's godless. 
You can believe anything and everything you want, provided, apparently, provided it doesn't hurt anybody else. Although I think that's transmorphed into, provided you don't hurt me or offend me or upset me or attack my beliefs. I think that's what it's morphed into. The problem is that the old story of the Bible is a stone which people trip over time and time again because it doesn't compromise on the truth. Let's think about these four boys. Daniel um, is not on an all-inclusive holiday to Babylon. Okay? He's not sat down with his friends and said, well, we'd like to go there this year for a holiday. Ooh, there's some hanging gardens in Babylon. Perhaps we should go and have a look at those. Ooh, there's all sorts of things there. They have some great wine and food. Let's go to Babylon and we can have a new bond. It's not like that. Just like the church in AD 35 didn't think it was a great idea to be spread across the known world when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting them. There was no choice. They had to go. Daniel and his three friends had no choice. We read about it in the newspapers today where modern slavery takes place. We read about it in the news from the war in Russia and Ukraine where children are forcibly taken to be kind of Russianized, if you like. We hear it all, all the time. Let's take these, was it, uh, I forget which, which uh, great theologian it was said, give me the child and I'll give you the man. Take the children, culturize them, bring them into your way of thinking, 20, 30 years down the line, I'll give you the man. Listen, we live in a world which wants to squeeze us in a way that is not our choice. These young men had no choice. But God has purpose in these four boys being in Babylon right now. In the story, God has purpose. And as we unpack that purpose in a moment, I want you to start to think about that actually you have purpose in the place where God has put you. You might not like where you are. You might not like your job. You might not like your house. You might not like your finances. Some of you might not like, like your spouse. If you don't, please come and see me afterwards. That would be helpful. Some of us don't like our children. Some of us don't like our parents. Some of us don't like this. We don't like that. We don't like the other. We're trapped where we are. Some of us don't like the hardships that we are in. Some of us don't like the suffering that we have. Some of us don't like where God has put us. And rightly we pray, God deliver me from this current world, deliver me from where I am. God, I want you to change, I want you to heal me, I want you more finances, I want a new job, I want where it happens to be. And that's not wrong to pray that, but we must understand that God is not kind of caught out by surprise at where you are. God is not kind of, oh, oh, I see, Sarah made that choice, and that's the result. Oh, I wish I'd known. I could have stopped that, I could have done something about it. 
Well, it's not like that. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows all about you. He knows every single detail. He knows exactly where he has put you right now. And there's comfort in that. There's comfort in knowing that God knows everything about me and he knows my situation right now, where I am. And that's hard sometimes, but it's comforting. God forbid that I would ever be in a place where God didn't know where I was. God forbid. And that means because he's put these four people, these four young boys, into this pagan society, he's already planned what's going to happen next. He's already thought it through. And it starts to unpack as we go through the story. And so it is for us. God just doesn't leave us where we are. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. These four boys, their plan, what was their purpose? Why were they there? We're going to explore that in a minute. In fact, we'll explore it now. They were there because they needed to speak to the steward, who the steward, so the steward could speak to the king, so that the king could see the four boys who trusted God and know that there was a God who wanted to speak to him. Can you imagine? Being a 14 year old. Any 14 year olds here still 15, 16? A few 15, 16 year olds still sitting there, 18. Just think what it must have been like for a 14 year old boy to be in a situation where he's confronted by the steward. And he doesn't know what God's plan is for his life. He doesn't know that the steward's going to speak to the king and the king's going to bring him into his presence. All they can do is look at the next step. So it is with us. We have to look at the next step, not down the line. I don't know the end of my story. I don't know what's going to happen. I've got some plans for today. I've got a diary for next week. In fact, actually right now I'm filling my diary for 2025. The stuff that I know that's coming down the line. I've got some things I'd like to do and I've got some plans. I've got a holiday book for next year already, etc, um, etc. Et but the reality is I don't know the end of my story. It might end tomorrow. It might end in another 30 years. But I don't know what's next. I've got some ideas, God willing. But the truth is, I don't know what's happening next. And so I, in reality, I have to trust God for the next Step. What were Daniel and his friends' next step was to say to the steward, actually, we don't want your food and wine. We'd like to be vegetarians, please. Now, this passage is not about vegetarianism. Okay, I'm not going to preach vegetarianism. Some of you are vegetarians, God bless you, that's, that's brilliant. I'm not. But this passage isn't about that, it's about trusting God. So these four boys, they are put in a position where they have to start to confront the society around them. And it's interesting that when they do that, they are not 
it seems, too worried about being called a different name. Okay, they've, their identity has been stolen, they're given another name. It appears that they're not that bothered about the problem of education, what they're going to be taught. In fact, actually later in the passage, what we discover is that Daniel excels in all things that the, the steward wants to teach them. But it appears that Daniel gets quite upset when he's told he can't eat kosher food, food anymore. Food that was given to God, sacrificed in the right way, that was important to him. It appears that he's decided that that is the line that he's not going to cross. And so he confronts the steward and says, no, we want to be vegetarians, I don't want your stuff, I don't want the food that's been sacrificed to your gods. And if I can't have the food that's not sacrificed or is not uh, killed in, according to the law of my people, then I'll just have vegetables, thank you very much. The steward gets really panicky. What happens? If uh, these four boys eat vegetables and they're put before the king and they look like me, what happens? The king will put him to death, and the four boys, and probably a lot of other people. So they have this test, and in 10 days time, we know the story now, just think of those boys, they don't know in 10 days time what they're going to look like. They're just trusting God. As he eats his courgette, he's trusting God. You need real faith to eat broccoli. <laughs> in my opinion. But they, there they are, they're eating this stuff, and in 10 days' time, they look better than anybody else in their class. Wow. I bet Daniel wasn't the most popular member of his class when we get to verse uh, 17. And the steward says, that's a great idea, you can all be vegetarians. <laughs> I can imagine his classmates were a little bit perturbed by this. He's not the most popular person in the class at all. <laughs> but the end result is they end up in front of the king. Daniel is seen to be far above all the people that's in his class. He excels in wisdom and understanding. And God gives him favour, particularly in dreams and interpreting dreams and visions. He's 14. God has a purpose for Daniel that he didn't understand. And now he stood before the king, speaking to the king. In fact, Pasha tells us that Daniel was even better than all the magicians, and all the astrologers, and all the witchcraft that was going on. Daniel was better than any of them. God has purpose and puts his favour on Daniel and his friends. God is subversive in this matter. Have you ever thought that? Daniel doesn't go to Babylon with a treasured verse that tells him 
that everything's going to be all right at the end. God doesn't reveal his purpose. In fact, his purpose, way, way back in verse 1, is the destruction of the king of Judah, who was a godless man. God doesn't reveal it. But he plants four 14-year-olds into the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And the fruition of it is, at the end of chapter 1, that Daniel is the best of the best of the best. God is subversive. So he is with us. God doesn't often reveal the ends to us. Doesn't tell us that these people and that people and those, that group and that group are going to become Christians or they're going to be healed or whatever it happens to be. God is subversive in our lives. And I mean that in the most honoured sense. He's working all the time. God knew, as I said earlier, God knew when I was going to be born, He knew the age I was going to be, everything else about me. He knows my situation. Bible tells me he's been work at work crafting my life, crafting my circumstances. He's, he's been bringing people into my life and weaving them into me. And you're part of that, whether you like it or not. And here I am now, stood before you. God's subversive plan in my life has worked me to this point, and it will continue working in my life until. The great plan of salvation comes to fruition and I stand before him and it's all revealed. God is subversive in your life. He's working to put you in the right place at the right time, to speak to the right people, to do the right things. He's put people alongside you, those people that you don't like particularly. My old pastor used to call them Mrs. Sandpaper. You know, there are people in my life that I know God's put alongside me, regardless of whether I like them or not. He's put them there to create patience in me because they've caused me so much turbulence in my life. Okay? God uses people, He brings them alongside me to knock off the hard edges and deal with the issues that's in my life. He's subversive. That wouldn't be my plan for my life. What's God's plan for your life? Why has he put you where you are? Why has he given you that job? Why has he, why has he brought you to this house that you live in right now? Why did he allow this illness to happen? Why did God do this and why did God do that? What's that about? What is God trying to achieve in your life? Who is it that God wants you to speak to that's going to speak to X and then Y? Before you know where you are, you're in the presence of the king. All too often, I, I have prayed, God, deliver me from this place. And actually it's God's will that I'm in this place. And I need to understand the difference. All too often I've cried, take this, whatever it is, five, we had a big financial difficulties, as you know, about 10 years ago. That was awful for me. Thank God, please deliver me from this financial situation. 
please deliver me from the stupidity that I've brought into my life. What I discovered was that actually God wanted to meet me right in the middle of it. Right where I was. And actually, if he delivered me out of that, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be where I am today. <coughs> Move on a little bit and get an idea. So these four boys, we're going to look at just briefly. These four boys are willing to go along with some stuff that's going around them and not other stuff. Okay. And in the book Straight to the Heart that I showed you earlier, there's a big discussion about contextualization. I don't know if you know what contextualization means, but it's where how we present something in the light of the culture that we live in. These four boys were rooted in Judaism. They knew it inside out. Since children, they'd been taught the scriptures. They'd been taught the information. They knew the stories. They knew how God worked. When they get to Babylon, they've got a bit of a problem because they can no longer express their Judaism in the way that they could when they were back in their hometown. It doesn't work anymore. They're now living in a new godless society. So how do we do this? What did they do? They applied themselves to their culture to understand it. And then once they understood it, they understood what the evils were that they were to avoid. And when they discovered which evils they had to avoid, they discovered how God could give them tools to get over it and to convince others around them. The old, let's read the five books of the Pentateuch, let's read it all together, wasn't going to work anymore. They had a new, had to think of a new way. Listen, the gospel never changes. It's always the same. It's always the same. The gospel never changes. But how we dress it can change. The things that were appropriate 50, 60, 70 years ago are not appropriate in our culture now. We're going to have to learn a new language so we can talk to people about our faith. Have you noticed when you talk about sin, it has particular connotations. People don't want to go there. But we can talk about sin in a new way. It doesn't change the fact of sin. We're told in society today that we're all born good and something happens to us and we kind of, you know, our parents and our families and our culture and our schools and all the rest of it make me the person I am. I wasn't as, I'm not as good as I was when I was born, but inherently I'm good. The Bible didn't say that at all. It said actually we were born in sin. We're inherently evil. And we struggle to do good. It's the other way around. We have to learn. We have to learn new ways of saying things. We have to learn new ways of doing things. We have to learn how we can talk to the people that we meet in our day-to-day -day life. 
Don Carson, his book, Cross and Christian, Christian Ministry, wrote this. Every culture has good and bad elements in it. In every culture, it is important for the evangelist, church planter, and witnessing Christian to flex as far as possible so the gospel will not be made to appear unnecessarily alien at merely cultural level. But it is also important to recognize evil elements in culture when they appear and to understand how biblical norms are tested. There will be times when it is necessary to confront culture. Brothers and sisters, we live in an age where increasingly the time is coming when we will have to confront culture and it's going to be uncomfortable for us. We walk a tightrope. That's right, I knew I'd got something. There we go. We're walking on the tightrope. All the time. On the one hand, which is where I end up, dogmatism. The only way to present the gospel is this. Even if it's outdated, even if it's 60, 70, 80, 100 years old, this is the way to do it. And we end up kind of being strange in our culture. Or we go the other direction, which is to become relative, relative to things. We adapt so much that actually there's no difference to what the culture is telling us around us. Either way, it ends up unfruitful. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I have become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Although I'm, I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those who are not, uh, not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that, uh, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means possible, I might save them. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. Here's something to think about. What is it that we do? So I have to, have, this week I've been thinking about, what is it that I do that puts non-Christians off the gospel? What is it? I've noticed that when I'm on the phone sometimes, or quite often, I'll say, at the end of it, I'll say, oh, bless you, thanks so much. And I, I think the guy that's the electrician at the other end, I'm not quite sure what all that means. I'm also aware that sometimes I use big words that other people don't understand. I'm aware that my very actions will stop me from communicating the gospel. Equally, I'm also aware, I'm also aware that in my desire to be light, I compromise on the gospel, I compromise on the things I'm saying. Come on, you guys. And therefore, I don't put them off, I just become like them. What is it that I do, what is it you do, that means that actually a non-Christian doesn't know or care whether you're a Christian or not? What is it we do? So how do we do this? Please hear me right. 
do not hear what I am not saying. I understand perfectly well that the way that you present the gospel to your friends is different from the way that I would. My way is not right, nor is it wrong. That means that your way is not right, nor is it wrong. Not exclusively right. We're in this together. We all have different expressions of the gospel. But the gospel never changes. So how do we do this? First of all, we do it by knowing God. Daniel and his friends knew God. They knew all about him. They knew what he said about himself. But more importantly, they knew God. They knew what he could do. They knew what he promised. They knew that what, no matter what happened, God was with them. They knew that in their new life, God was there. They knew that God had a plan for them. Do you know God that ex to that extent? Or do you just know about him? Do you actually trust what he's got in mind for you? Or do you just you just go along happy looking? Listen, we must know God. We must understand the basic foundations and doctrine of our faith. It's been said recently, the biggest problem the church faces is not what's going out there. It's a lack of understanding of who God is. Doctrine. Doctrine is so important. And it's not just about having information, it's about applying it to my daily walk with Jesus. When I first became a Christian, I've heard me say before, the gospel I came to faith on was, come to Jesus and everything will be alright. That was the sum total of the doctrine that I had. You could have written it on the back of not just a postage stamp, you could have ripped it in three quarters and ripped it again and it would still not be, there would still be a lot of blank space around it. Listen. Let's not be lucky getting into the doctrines and foundation of our faith. Second, identity. These four boys knew beyond any doubt that they were Israelites, they were a nation of God, they were chosen by God, and they may have moved to a new culture and a new world, but they knew who they were. And they were not going to compromise on what they were. Do you know who you are in Christ? Most of the pastoral issues that I come across and have come across for the last 20 years and still do even here in Cockmouth comes down to I don't really, the person I'm talking to doesn't really understand who they are in Christ. They don't understand. I'm going to go to heaven. Does God love me? God feels today like God doesn't love me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care for me. God's not my father either. Etc. 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 Listen. Know who you are in Christ. It's the it's one of the biggest foundations we stand on. These boys knew it. Do you? 
Have you stress tested your identity in Christ? If you haven't, please do it. Please get to know Jesus. Get to know what he thinks about you. Get to know why you're in Christ, where you're seated now, how you're walking in Christ. It solves a lot of pastoral issues. It means I can go on holiday next week, not worried, or next year, not worried about what you think and what you're doing. Listen. Who I am in Christ is, for us, in our world now, is really, really, really important. Because the world is telling you all sorts of other things about you. Learning. It's important that we understand the culture around us. We can't just kind of reverse into our little Christian enclave and hope that the world will change. It's not going to happen. We live in a post-Christian society. The changes that we have seen over the last 20 years in our culture will not be reversed until God brings revival into our country. So get used to it. Isn't it awful? Isn't it awful what the people think? Isn't it awful? Did you know? Do you think this performance for the powers of this? Listen, we can't retreat into our own curve. Daniel didn't. He came out fighting. Understanding our culture is, is vital. I would not want to be bringing kids up today. I've got three beautiful children. We've fostered. We've had teenage fosters, young foster children. Parents, I want to tell you, I have the utmost admiration for you. Because I would not want to be bringing children up today. Because of the pressures on us. Parents, it's incumbent on you, and it's incumbent, incumbent on us as part of your church family to understand the culture around us. So we can help our kids grow. We can give them the security that they have, they need. There's good, there's bad, and there's the downright dangerous out there. We need to understand, read about it. Get some good books. There's some great books out there that will help you understand culture. If you don't know any, come and see me. I've got loads on my shelf. We talked about doctrine. Ephesians 4.14 says, So we no longer be infants tossed around and forth, back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Oh, that's nice. Let's go over here. Let's do that. Oh, that's nice. Let's go over here. Let's do that. Oh, that's what this American evangelist says. Let's go do that. Oh, this is the latest from there. These are all good things. But we must be tied into doctrine. So we're not tossed around by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheme. Destiny. Where are you going? Why are you living today? Why are you around today? I'm trying to live in the light of eternity. That changes my perspective. My eternity is coming a lot faster towards me than some of yours is. Some of you are even closer to your eternity. Listen, 
We need to live in the light of it. That's what Paul says. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right now I'm living for Christ, but one day I'm going to die. It's going to be gain for me. In fact, actually at one point Paul says, I'd rather be up there in heaven with Jesus, but for your sake I'm going to stay here. Are you living in the light of eternity, or are you living in the light of day-to-day popularism amongst your friends? Who's, whose value system is more important? Jesus' or your next door neighbor? Living in the light of eternity. Faith, believing what God has said about himself, believing what he says about his kingdom, believing what he says about me and my part in it, takes faith. Daniel needed faith. And finally, wisdom. Daniel doesn't go to war on everything. He doesn't come out fighting about everything. He comes about fighting on one thing. Food. I'm going to tell you that actually, if you want to pick a battle with me about food, I can, I'll, I'll, we'll go with it. I can take Chinese, Indian food, you can bring it along. Listen, he picked the right battle at the right time, in the right place. Sometimes we are so foolish, we try to pick fights in every direction. Wisdom, to know what to say at the right time to the right people. I'm going to say this. Uh, recently, as you probably were in the Pocknoth discussion group, was a, well, yes, it was a, 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 a Cumbria crack. There was a big discussion about the guy who was in Keswick at the Keswick Convention with his little placard saying, I don't, uh, from uh, Paul's writing, saying, I don't allow women to teach in church. And it created a huge controversy on the internet. Wrong fight, wrong place, wrong time. Listen, we must be gentle as doves and as wise as serpents. Listen, all that, if we're not careful, all we do is reinforce stereotype of what people think Christians think and believe. Be careful. Pick the right battle at the right time with the right people. And know what you're talking about. We're not called, I don't believe anymore, I've, I've thought this for years, I'm coming to the conclusion that I'm not called to change the culture. I'm here to extend the kingdom. And they can be two different things. So, so application. Are we, like a chameleon, we adapt our beliefs and our thoughts and our practices to compromise with the people around us? If I ask myself the question, the answer is yes. Anybody who doesn't, we'd like to stand up now and finish the preach for them. Great Christians on Sunday, great pagans on Monday. What are we? Are you compromising? Why has God put you where you are? Has God allowed suffering and hardship, pain and alienation to come
come into your life for a purpose? Can you pray these things away? Or has God put you there for a reason? I'm not talking about inshallah, God wills, whatever happens. I'm not talking about that. It's right we pray. It's right we ask for healing. It's right we do all the things we do. But we must also understand God's put us where we are. And actually, God might have put us there so that he can heal us for the glory of God. But please don't hear what I'm not saying. Can we pray these things away? What am I living for today? People liking me, accepting me, popularity, no wish to offend. I'm a Yorkshireman, I just breathe and someone gets offended, so I, I just live with that offense all the time. Am I living for the kingdom? Do I live in the light of heaven? Paul says, these momentary Sufferings and nothing compares to the beauty that's coming. Where do I get my reward from? Wisdom. What's the right battles that I need to be fighting right now? You need to consider these things. I'm trying to explain to you actually I live in the middle of all this because I flip flop from one side to side. We all do it. I want to be liked by people. So I'll do whatever I can sometimes to be liked. Not understanding I've just compromised the gospel. Let's pray. Let's just pray. The kids are coming back in. That's absolutely fine. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for this story of these four boys who, in the middle of incredible hardship, were able to know who they were, know what they were doing, know why they were there. They were able to trust you, trust their identity, trust your work in their lives. Lord Jesus, would you help us? As we go from this place to today, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would not be pagans tomorrow. I pray, Father, that we would be people who stand out for all the right reasons. I pray, Father, that, as Phil has said this morning already, that we have conversations with people where we can gossip about Jesus. I pray, Father, for connections and understanding <coughs> around us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.